Hello, everyone. We are back with our next episode of Innovativeness. For this episode, we made a very special trip to the Ingredion corporate offices in Bridgewater, New Jersey. Ingredion is an ingredient provider for many industries, including food, beverage, pharmaceutical, and more. We had the pleasure of meeting with Julie Mann, who leads Ingredion's Emerging Global Protein Program and has extensive experience in plant proteins for food, beverage, and nutrition with a focus in pulse crops, rice, and various plant-based protein. Julie took us on a tour of Ingredion and fascinated us with the ins and outs of creating all different types of ingredients. It's an intricate process, and although there was much proprietary info we were not privy to, of course, we learned quite a bit about how flavors and textures are made. We also got some great insight into Julie's past, her passion for plant-based proteins, and what ultimately brought her to Ingredion. Okay. Okay, we're here with Julie Mann. Um, Julie, what is your official title here at Ingredion? <laughs> My official title has changed a little bit over the last year. My official title is Global Strategy and Innovation for Plant-Based Proteins. So that's, that's the role that, that I, I sit on the, the strategy side um, of, of the pillar. Awesome, awesome. And, and you've been at Ingredion for how long now? Almost three years. Okay. And I know in the last three years, a lot has happened with the plant-based category here. Um, So can you tell us a little bit about, like, you know, your experience and and how you got into this? Sure. Sure. Yes. Um, I I would say Ingredion has invested um, quite some money, uh, $160 million in plant-based proteins. And, you know, before I arrived... um, at Ingredient about three years ago, really the the um, the plant based protein platform here was kind of in its infancy, mm-hmm. and it was sort of getting ready to um, pick up and build. And so uh, one of the reasons that I came to Ingredient was to help to do that. So uh, my my background really. Uh, was in confectionery and then obviously food science and nutrition is my um, my base learning and kind of the passion that I've had in my career. But I spent 20 years of that time at the Hershey Company prior to coming to Ingredion. Wow. So strategy on the plant-based protein side, can you speak on what that actually means? You know, st- Sure. Sure. Strategy, strategy from the perspective of plant-based proteins um, really is what, what ingredients in the plant-based protein space are going to uh, be the most relevant for consumers um, in the years to come. So looking, looking at all of the, the you know, there's, there's thousands and thousands of proteins that come from plants and really to understand which of those proteins make the most sense um, from a strategic perspective. You know, what, what, what products do you want to build a supply chain in? Um, what, which protein sources are strategic intent for, for you as a company? And, you know, Ingredient is a, is a 
you know, ingredient solutions provider, essentially. That's, that's, that's our kind of mission is to, to provide final solutions. Plant proteins play a role in that solution. So you're essentially steering the ship of how Ingredion is going to concentrate on what proteins so that that then has its fundamentals in understanding an overview of what is happening in the science of it, in the ingredients, and trying to be a little bit of a futurist. Exactly. Wow. And you help a lot of companies from large to small um, who come to you with you know, a challenge when it comes to what, you know, ingredients will work best in their products. Can you kind of take us through what a company might experience if they come to you with one of those challenges? Absolutely. Um, so we do. We work with um, very large um, consumer packaged good companies all the way down to uh, very entry kind of emerging brands and small entrepreneurs. And we, we it, it really, the process is, is about the same for, for either. Um, you know, we have a host of knowledge around um, ingredient solutions. Um, so that includes uh, from, you know, the science of the ingredient, the characterization of the ingredient, the application into a, a finished uh, segment, um, you know, such as a dairy alternative or a meat alternative. So when, when a, uh, a company comes to us, um, they're looking for um, a, a solution to a problem they may be having. That could be um, could be a, that their product isn't gelling correctly. It could be that their their um, thickness of their sauce is not where they want it to be from a product delivery. So the process is quite the same. We, we typically sit down with um, a customer like this and we discuss the challenges they're having. We have technical teams and application experts that will come in as a cross-functional team and sit down and develop a plan and, and some, some testing solutions. Sometimes we, we sample them products and we, we simply just send them a product to their lab or their facility. And sometimes we will work with them here in-house and, and actually work in the lab joint, jointly together to, to solve the problem. It sounds like a full, you know, immersion into, you know, what they're dealing with and their, and their problems, which I think a lot of companies run into, especially in, with scalability, um, taking a product from, from the kitchen to a manufacturing facility. And so those are things you look at too, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And we have, um, we have specific segment experts. And when I say segment experts, that means somebody that is expert in savory, somebody that's expert in dairy, somebody that's expert in um, you know, meats or in, in um, starch-based pastas or breads. So we, we not only have folks that are expert in the marketing and the trends and understanding what's happening in those segments, but we also have technical folks who understand the depth of what's going on with ingredients in those products. Hmm. Right. So in plant-based proteins, um, let's just say that you have certain tools. They're almost like puzzle pieces. So an example might be somebody that has a drink and they want plant-based proteins in that drink, but let's just say that they're having issues with mixing it, right? So you understand specifically how to target their pain points and then suggest different, you know, different ways in which you can solve that problem, right? So 
how much of that is where you get to a point and there's more than one solution, more than one plant-based protein that could solve it? And how do you explain that and break down the characteristics? And like, what is, how does that conversation um, unfurl? Yes, I would say that, I would say some of the larger companies have a lot of resources on their teams already that are food scientists, that are nutritionists or process technologists. They bring that to bear in their project teams. Um, so a lot of times maybe we don't, we don't necessarily provide them the whole landscape of plant-based protein and what is out there and, you know, you have... 18 options of different proteins to put in sure. because they know that already and usually they will come to us because they know that our our forte and our expertise is around pulses right so they're looking for a pulse based protein solution um and and again you know pulses are chickpea lentil fava bee fava bean and yellow pea and <clears throat> Essentially, what we'll do with them is when they come to us, we'll explain to them the features, the benefits, you know, the nutritional benefits, the functional benefits, um, the flavor and texture benefits, and we'll kind of walk them through what different solutions might look like for them. Sometimes, in addition, part of the solution is a, a plant-based protein and a hydrocolloid. You know, your example about mixing a beverage. Um, or, or having um, some, some challenges around mixing protein into a beverage. Sometimes it's two ingredients that come together. And because we have that broader portfolio beyond just plant-based proteins, that historic knowledge, we can deliver solutions to them that solve their problems. Right. Wow. Okay. So then do you find that because there are trends in food, like right now, I think one of the biggest trends is pea protein, and everybody's really hot on that. Um, do you ever get frustrated by a client's desire to have, let's just say, pea protein? They want pea protein, but you're like, actually, chickpea protein would be better. You know, do, is that like part of, must be? Yes. I mean, if you, if you think about, I mean, I've been in protein ingredients for over 20 years, starting with dairy and working through soy. Uh, in my past life and now um, working with pulse-based ingredients. And yes, pea protein is the next generation. It's really the first um, product that emerged after soy um, in any kind of scalable way. So mm. yes, you can get pumpkin seed protein in very small quantities. You can get sunflower protein in very small quantities. But when we talk about having a supply chain large enough to supply very large companies with a lot of pea protein. You know, there, there's a reason why I think that there's a lot of gravitation towards pea. There's a lot of interest and there's a lot of trend information that talks about emerging proteins and which ones, you know, which is the next big protein. Um, the, the jury's out on that because mm. there's so many options um, that, that I think, it, it makes sense that customers and consumers are saying we want pea. It's the next generation of, of plant protein right now. What about rice protein? When we were at the Plant-Based World Expo, I was just noticing there's really not a lot of rice protein. But like looking around, I see, oh, there's one up there. So I was just curious. What's the deal with that? 
Yeah, uh, rice protein is looked at in the market. I would say um, a, a couple different, couple different things about rice protein. So first of all, um, rice, uh, rice itself is very low in protein. So okay. the, the actual rice grain is about nine to eleven percent protein. Um, so you think about that. If you're gonna get that protein and utilize that in a product, that's a pretty low yield. How does uh, that compare to like pea protein then? Pea protein's in the mid twenties. Okay. Right. So, um, so again, you're, you're still you're still extracting. Um, you still have a lot of other things that come when you extract the protein. But for rice, it's it's um, a smaller percentage. Um, additionally, I would say rice protein. Um, in the past, the, there was maybe three or four. Um, suppliers or um, kind of pr proprietors of rice protein, um, most of the products have a little bit of, um, of a grainy texture that goes along with it based on, it's based on the processing of the protein, it's based on the particle size, based on a, a lot of factors, but I think rice protein has sort of um, gotten that mark um, that it, it kind of can promote a, a gritty taste. Uh, mm. However, there are new technologies today that are changing that. Um, additionally, rice uh, protein is used a lot in combination with other proteins um, to get that kind of more complete amino acid profile that folks are looking for from a nutritional perspective. Would you say that, so after soy, comes pea protein and that has the most research into it right now comparatively compared to soy right so it's research that really unlocks the adaptability and usability of that as a protein um, from what i understand there's roughly 300,000 species of plants that are edible and that can be that of course we haven't disseminated yet all the value from that but i guess my my curiosity really is in that because there are other opportunities out there, you know, we, we do need to use our own vocabulary, right? So a vocabulary being the amount of words that we can actually describe a subject, same as that research of a particular protein would be the vocabulary of our being able to use that. Um, being able to motivate different research in, in those areas is always, it depends on a lot of the times uh, fads, you know? Um, what would you say is one of the more underutilized, um, you know, possible proteins out there that we we need to do more research on, or is there a set of them? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say there's a set of them for sure. I mean, if if you if you look back over time, dairy and soy, you know, dairy's been around for a very long time. Soy really kind of entered the market in the the 60s and 70s mm -hmm. uh, on a on a more popular um, kind of scale. There's a lot of research done on on those pieces. P um, is is the furthest along, but there's still a long way to go on understanding that. And I think you make a very good point that biodiversity is really important for for the the planet um, for many reasons and for the people um, for from nutrition to variety in the diet. Um, and and I think when you look at the emerging proteins, I mean there there's there's uh, so many of them. I would say there, there's a couple spaces that, um, you know, mushroom protein um, starts to really gain a lot of traction in the last in the last couple of years, um, and and just even some other um, other 
other varietals of beans or other varietals of grains and and seeds and nuts so you know you see um, uh, almond protein you see um, and, and and they all are very different when you have an oil seed based protein versus a grain seed based protein versus a pulse or a bean or a legume you get very different um, properties you get very different nutrition different taste different really everything everything about it it becomes a very different value proposition um, for the customer and and really in a way for the planet right I was curious um, how do you source a lot of your ingredients do you work with farmers and um, is it mostly sourced like domestically or internationally or both yeah, it just depends on the, the, the region. I mean, so, right. you know, in North America, um, we predominantly source, you know, North American crops. Um, we have, um, Ingredion has a crop science team um, that works with farmers um, to, to understand, you know, the best varietals, um, the best economics of, of the, you know, the field to uh, processing facility. Um, so, so, yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay, so there's a, there's a lot of value being put into these ingredients and just thinking about the field side of things because you're talking about plants and plants are grown, they're, they're crops, they're, they're yielded. Um, how much of, because I think it's interesting if you consider in the more recent history of like, you know, companies that were manipulating the actual genetics of a crop to deal with issues, like to, to bring more protein to it. And I think that's less the case now. It's more in terms of trying to deal with crops in their more natural format, if that makes sense. And then later on disseminating how to activate and deal with those ingredients as relates to the other subset that it's going to contribute to, right? So. How much, uh, you know, goes backwards and forwards between that? So the science you do here, does that end up informing um, what crops are, you know, like let's say in pea proteins, what's being done with them, like even conditions such as watering and all kinds of, like there's like a whole thing there. But Yeah, um, I, I guess really we, we definitely, I mean, any, any ingredient company has the ability to influence um, the farm process and and sort of how how things are grown and what's grown because again supply and demand mm -hmm. so if if there's a, a larger demand for um, for peas then you know it's pretty easy to make the case to farmers that they should be growing more peas and less perhaps of, of something else um, I think when when we look at that influence um, you know for example, peas are um, a very sustainable crop because they fix nitrogen in the soil, so they require less nitrogen um, to actually be put on as fertilizer. Mm. So that's that's not only a cost savings, but it's a um, it's a it's cleaner because we're not having to, to kind of dump um, fertilizers onto fields. Um, they also are very efficient water usage compared to um, other several other crops when you compare and 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 much more to, when you compare to dairy or to meat or some of these other items so again the sustainability story i think we we definitely can influence um what is happening on the crop side of 
of things. And, and as I said, you know, having a crop science team and, and really understanding um, the, the intricacies of the science behind that is really important. Sure. Sure. How much of, um, in, in, well, I think we, we, we took a little tour of Ingredient today, um, and it just brought a lot of, you know, what, what I think, I, what my takeaway was that there's just a tremendous amount of science that goes into understanding, you know, um, the usage of these ingredients that you're championing. Um, that said, right, mm-hmm. um, I suppose that right now in, in the, the faster um, like case of like a burger, for example, texture, um, how texture is a part of the opportunity to make plant-based more meat-like um, seems to be the, 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 the rule, not the exception right now. Um, right. It did seem like there was a lot being done on, on texture testing here for sure as one of the pillars. Yeah, well, building texture, I mean, I've, I've been with Ingredient three years, and I, I look look at them, look at this company as, you know, the builder of texture, mm-hmm. really. Wow. I mean, but when you look at the portfolio that that we have um, and, and the resources around measurement and development and testing, we, we can develop textures from hydrocolloids, from starches, from plant-based proteins, um, sort of across the, the portfolio. So I think that's why when we say we're one of the world's leading ingredient solutions companies, it's because we put the right puzzle pieces together, whether it be the plant-based proteins or other, to make this texture you're talking about or to create something innovative. Right. And another thing we had talked about, which I thought was interesting, was characterization and how that's a big challenge, especially for smaller companies who may not have the resources to do the testing that they need to do to understand how the ingredients are going to work within a product. Absolutely. That's that's a challenge for uh, for a small kind of emerging company because, you know, they're spending a lot of their resources on their idea and deploying their idea, mm-hmm. right? And maybe maybe branding their idea, understanding the retail side of things. They, they have a lot of, of pieces of the puzzle they have to figure out and so for them to have a characterization lab where they can look at starch viscosity or (laughs) plant protein emulsification that's that's really challenging now not saying it can't be done some of them partner with um, firms that that specialize in in characterization some of them will maybe have a partnership with the university um, some of them work with us. Uh, we have an emerging business unit that um, really focuses on catering to those folks and making sure that they get some, um, you know, some additional support because they, they need different things than a large um, CPG company does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. With the texture uh, concept, I just, I guess what I was trying to ask you is with, there's just a real desire to try to emulate meat, animal meats right now. Um, and, in, you know, this is another fad. And I understand it, the equivalent of being able to turn on flexitarians to eating more plant-based. But I feel like sometimes the opportunity, there's a lot more opportunity there to mess with texture that is relevant more to the actual plant side than necessarily the emulation of animal protein. So I don't know if that's, you know, if you want to speak on that a little bit. So the 
I mean, I guess what what's interesting is that over the last, let's say, you know, the, the first, I don't know, the first meat analogs really were in the, the 60s, 50s and 60s. Um, you know, Tofurky was one of the pioneers of this space. And, and previous to that, there were meat substitutes, but they were tofu, they were tempeh, they were seitan, they weren't exactly mimicking meat, right? Tofurky came in and said, we want to mimic meat. As you move forward through the progression of the last, you know, 40-ish years, um, you're right. You see, you see this movement of really t trying to take plant proteins and understand their functionality and understand how to make them more like meat because to your point um, the 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 market today is really not so much focusing on delivering these products to vegans and to vegetarians it's really that they're targeting the the meat market the the folks that consume meat on a daily basis these plant proteins need to match the bite the mouthfeel the chew the structure the function um, the flavor release of, of real meat and that's that's one of the big um, initiatives as you know it's it's in the news uh, nearly every day right yes yeah. it's really strange because I almost feel like you're dealing with something that in order to have the equivalent of it it's 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 not natural and it's so absurd in essence because you're trying to do this naturally using plant-based to go after meat and so people's perception of that and their misunderstandings, you know, is uh, I think there's a great gray area there. Yes. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. no, I, I completely agree. And I think I think what what's happening, though, is there there's been a coming together of a couple things. So one is consumers concerned for health and wellness. They're they're realizing that they the decisions they make and the purchases they make have an impact on our planet, whether that be the soil, the water, the sustainability, the animal welfare, the ability to feed the, you know, billions or seven, you know, it's going to keep increasing. We're going to have to keep providing that. So I think folks looking at plant-based and saying, if, if you can get closer to meat and I can help to save the planet, help to contribute to a better world, um, you know, the UN came out with their report in 2018 saying the way we eat is one of the largest impacts we can have on the planet and, and some of the problems that we've been experiencing and seeing over the last um, couple years with global warming, etc. So I think when you put all of these pieces together that, I, that I've just kind of walked through, it is a compelling reason to go after a plant protein for, to replace the things that you know are are maybe not as good for our planet as we once thought they were mm -hmm. right and another thing you know we had talked about this briefly but um, just the idea of going more clean label and that being not a, like it being slightly a challenge for some of the scientists um, but also necessary as people want you know, less processed foods, more whole foods. Um, so that being definitely a trend that, that you're seeing and, and working within. Yes, uh, clean label, I would say clean label goes hand in hand with transparency. Right. So really it's, it's, it's being, it's food integrity. 
It's, it's making sure that you're explaining what you're, from a food scientist perspective, we don't want anything to be um, Frankenfood. We want people to understand that there's facts associated with food. This is how it's processed. This is what the ingredient is. Um, this was not used in the making of this mm -hmm. product. Um, people want to see that. And, and I think, you know, you see it in, I mean, look in the, um, the dairy category with the labeling about, you know, no RBST, um, which is a growth hormone. I mean, if you talk to farmers, they'll say, well, we haven't been using that for a long time. But the, the labeling is still on the package because I think that they're trying to convey this is clean. Mm -hmm. This is clean. Um, and, and that's becoming, it's across every segment. I mean, it, this is not just in one, uh, in one spot. I think all of the food segments right now are experiencing transparency, food integrity, and clean label. And, and I personally um, don't see that changing anytime soon. Right. Well, that, I mean, in the communication of products, so, you know, what the label says definitely sets the tone for the comprehension of what that is. And then, you know, when you get a product and you actually make it in your kitchen, you know, whatever, whether it's heating it up really quickly or it's more involved, um, the, the integrity, though, of I feel like of the industry of plant based industry right now is really measured in a strange way because of this going after meat, um, animal meat, and trying to emulate it. Um, whereas, so it's, it's very important, the components of clean label, the explanation that something isn't inherent in, you know, like RSB, whatever it is for cows, right? Well, which you wouldn't have for plant-based anyway, but as an example. I think, though, that to be, to be frank about it, the opportunity is there really to make the food delicious and more culinary, you know, and plant-based can go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. As we know, cooking vegetables is a skill, right? It's its own separate skill. A restaurant that uses meats does other things. A restaurant that only uses um, plants to, to, to cook um, beautiful food with, is, it's, it's a learning curve. And I feel that the learning curve is still happening right now in how we're sussing this out for its opportunity. So agreed. Uh, I think I think also you know when you, when I've talked to a lot of consumers about this, they they're always very concerned about preparing vegetables because it's something they weren't really trained to do. They you know they were taught to cook a steak on the grill. They were caught taught to make a burger or. Um, you know, a piece of chicken in their oven, and they were taught all kinds of methods to prepare and marinate and um, make this product tender. And you look at vegetables, and it was sort of like, well, you, you put them in a pan, <laughs> and they get mushy, and then people don't want to eat them. And, and which is really, it's kind of, it's a shame, because I think you're right, we're, we're starting to change that. But it, it's taking full food service organizations to say, we are going to innovate around vegetables. We are going to promote plants. We are going to talk plant forward. You know, we are shifting. Um, we are shifting to having more plants. And for consumers in their houses, you know, for those that are still cooking, I, I keep hearing data suggesting <laughs> the numbers are getting much slimmer on uh, who's actually cooking at home. But those that are, they, there's all kinds of apps now and training that goes on to say, 
will help you cook vegetables because you don't know how to do it. Um, and it seems so simple, but, you know, and, and I love my mother to death, but she was a perfect example of, um, you know, she, she innovated much in the kitchen around meat um, and maybe potatoes, but everything else was sort of, well, this, we, we cook asparagus this way and it's in water. <laughs> and it's boiled. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and so, again, I think there's there's a lot. The, 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 I feel like it's a good thing that for, for a lot of reasons, not just for planetary and sustainability and all of those things, but even just for health, mm-hmm. for, for um, consumers' health, I think we're headed in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So just to go back in time for a moment, before you were an ingredient, you spent a, a good amount of time at Hershey. Um, and by the way, cacao is a plant. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it is. So, um, any chance that cacao has any uh, properties that could be reevaluated in terms of plant based proteins? I mean, literally, I, never say never. Every single component of the universe that is is termed a plant as being looked at for protein right now. Um, I, I would say um, most most of the cacao positive benefits have have really been focused around antioxidants and and kind of cocoa flavanols and flavonoids, um, more on the anti-inflammatory or anti-aging um, kind of side of things. Protein. Um, I haven't heard a whole lot about that. And like I said, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody's off looking at that, but um, not something that you hear much about. Um, more on the bioactive side. Mm. <clears throat> right. So with your uh, background in, in, in the science of food, um, were you more hands-on at Hershey with that? Yes, I was. So I spent, I spent 20 years... Um, of my career at the Hershey company. And essentially I had, I had a couple kind of major roles. One was in product development, which was very hands-on. So it was formulation of um, products, formulation of confections and snacks. Um, I was, I worked a little bit in the snacks group as well. Um, And then I also had um, another kind of larger chunk of my career there in um, food technology platforms. So looking at um, research, researching ways to make better for you confectionery, maybe better health, um, maybe lower fat. Um, and, and at that time, um, I was very hands-on. I was in the lab. I was in the pilot plants. I was starting up products in our manufacturing facilities. Um, that was kind of the first, you know, of my 20 years, that was probably the first 13 or so. Wow. Um, and then as I moved through to the next sort of um, pillar of, of my, my stint at Hershey, um, I, that's where I really got into proteins. And so really dig, digging deep into dairy proteins, because it makes sense that being with the Hershey company, I would have been working on dairy proteins. Um, and... Uh, really taking that and seeing what was coming that that dairy is is a, it's a pillar it's a fundamental protein it's it's it, it it is popular for its functionality it's popular for its taste but i was seeing this movement of 
folks to soy and to other plants. And so for me, you know, the first part was very hands-on. I would say the, the, the last third of my time there was more strategic and really building a program around proteins. Right. And you were seeing this trend in plant-based, um, it seems like way early on before a lot of people like were even aware of it. Yeah, and I think part of it is, you know, it's always beneficial if you if you work where your passion is, right? Mm-hmm. So I've been a vegetarian for quite a long time. And so I would always follow the trends. I would always follow what was happening in the market. And I think for me, um, having that opportunity to shape a program at Hershey and say, plant protein is coming. It's coming. Um, mm-hmm. I can see it because I'm buying products that there's tons of innovation happening there's, but it was it was just slightly before I would say the the big tip um, started to, to happen, and now you know you can't open up um, a, an email, uh, the web, anything, a magazine, and plant based is kind of everywhere. Right? Oh yeah, oh yeah. But isn't it funny that within the traditions of chocolate making, it's really a synergy between the plant that is the cacao pod and then dairy, right? So it's animal and plant and so then vegan chocolate came around as like in the vernacular of things. And I've had some vegan chocolate that just astounded me at how beautiful it was. Yes. Um, so it's interesting that now this opportunity to make chocolate that is not using animal proteins exists in, and how it's also it's still antiquated in people's minds as veganism is changed to now being plant based vegan chocolate, plant-based chocolate, chocolate that's made with plants. It's from, you know, it's... Exactly. It, no, exactly. And I mean, if you think about it, a lot of people don't know the semantics of, of chocolate and maybe nor should they, but dark chocolate yeah. doesn't contain any... Dark chocolate typically is vegan hmm. um, unless they're using some sort of milk fat for a oh. softening property or... But it's, it's, it's basically cacao. It's sugar. It's a, usually a, an emulsifier maybe or two, and that helps uh, get everything nice and flowing and coated and, um, you know, but it, it's vegan. Milk chocolate um, does have a proportion of dairy component in it. And yes, you're right. There's um, several companies out there taking that milk portion out and replacing it with, um, you know, one of them's using like a lupin protein, one of them's using a... Um, I think it's an oat protein. Mm. There's a couple different, um, really, it's, it's, it's just to say we're pulling out the dairy, we're putting in this plant, and um, similar with a lot of the inclusions. I mean, look at the inclusions used in confectionery. Peanuts, plant-based, hazelnuts, almonds. So there's, there's a very big synergy there um, for, for that industry. And then also to realize that those confectionery products a lot of times are used in a lot of other categories, like bakery, snacking, snack bars, um, you know, they're used as layers or coatings or mm-hmm. so. And then to make things even more complicated, you have the company Perfect Day that has synthesized dairy, like milk, without cows and has added other things that are plant-based as components of it. But so now they're churning stuff out and they mo- more recently did an ice cream. Um, it's a crazy world right now. 
Yes, it is. <laughs> we have we have plant based, we have fermentation, and we have cell based. And I think at the end of the day, there's probably room for all three. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Clearly, I, there 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 is. It's just really now between the leaps and bounds that are happening in food science is you know again the clients and the customers and and it's really figuring out how to message them what the benefits are of these things why they should care you know i mean it's right yeah well and you have you have very different consumer segmentation right so if you if you look across a market um say the north american market there's consumers who really care a lot about every choice they make whether it's sustainable, whether it's healthy, kind of a, a health foodie kind of. Um, and then you go on this spectrum of a, a continuum, if you will, all the way down to someone who says, I eat because it tastes good. I don't care so much. And, and many of them will be honest about it. And it's, it's okay. We're all different, right? Um, I eat because it tastes good. I don't eat because of saving the planet. I don't eat because it's low calorie. I don't eat because it's low fat. I eat because it tastes good. And so you've got this continuum that you have to understand where these folks fall and where are the biggest segments. Mm-hmm. You know, there's the, your moderate folks in the middle. Um, but but again, understanding the, the insight is is the why of the world, right? That's how we develop new products. That's how food scientists and food marketers work. We look at what people are asking for and we try to provide that for them but we also try to anticipate what is that next thing they're looking for or with all of the intersection of the trends and the things going on um, in our world how do we predict what that next tipping point is or that next thing so that is definitely the biggest challenge and at the end of the day no matter how it's weighted it's Got to taste good, right, for people to come back. So. Taste is king. Yeah. I mean, it really is. You, yeah. you can have a lot of benefits around, um, you know, sustainability or health and wellness, but if if the taste is not there, the repeat purchase typically doesn't happen. They'll try it. Right. They want to try it. They want to get get that product in their hands and give it a shot, but if it doesn't taste good, yes, it doesn't yeah. usually go very far. Which is right. why it's so important for these companies to really get it right before they get it out there. Exactly. Because so many of them are, are are taking the time to perfect their technology and what they're doing, but at the same time, there's there's some out there that, that just want to be, you know, first to market or quick to market, and that, that sometimes kind of turns people off from the whole thing if they try something and it's not good. Agreed. Yeah. Um, but just to switch gears for one second, um, so you're a board member, a member of the Plant-Based Foods Association in the... C3 Research Division, correct? So what is that exactly? Yeah, so Plant-Based Foods uh, Association really uh, was founded several years ago. Um, Michelle Simons, the executive director, and Mm -hmm. she has really led um, a work stream and and a really strong mission and vision there to basically level the playing field for plant-based foods. So, you know, she's she's a lawyer um, by training, and a lot of what they're doing is creating, um, I would say, resources in some ways for some of the member companies that join PBFA, and also going and fighting some of the battles with the the legislation around labeling. Um, you know, what is milk? What is not milk? What is meat? What is not meat? And 
Um, there's a lot. I mean, it literally, it changes every day what's going on. But I'm I'm on the C3. So there's a C6 and a C3. Um, the C3 is the research um, education kind of place. So I sit on that board um, and I and I meet with them just to really help them understand coming from the CPG world where I spent 20 years in Hershey and now working for Ingredion in plant based and for an ingredient ingredient company. Um, it's helpful for me to share some of that lens with with them, and of course, I'm passionate about plant-based protein, so helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that our first introduction to you was at an event in the city, and um, it was overheard that you were talking about marathon running and carb loading. <laughs> now, <laughs> to those that don't know out there, uh, Julie uh, is is actually a marathon runner. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, in this conversation, it went something like this, that somebody was, you know, enjoying the concept of carb loading, I think, because they really like pasta, for one, right? Yeah. An indulgence before an event, and you get your reward. Um, other people would just feel a little stuffed, but that's okay. Um, you are saying that the actual value of that was misdiagnosed. Um, so if you could just talk a little bit about that, and then we have some more for you. Sure. So. Uh, every, I think everyone has a different opinion, especially runners. Runners are very um, uh, opinionated in, in what works for them. And, and you learn over time what works for you may not be what you've heard or what you read about or what someone preached to you on you know some night before a long race. Um, so for me personally, um, I did some research around carb loading and why why do people carb load? I mean, it's pretty simple premise, right? And I'm, I'm not going to go too in depth, but you know, you're, you're basically going in and building up your body's glycogen stores so that when you're running long distances, you have the ability to kind of quickly pull, um, quickly pull energy or, or glycogen from, from your muscles, right? Um, and really, if, if you look at how the body works, I mean, you have insulin, you have glucagon, insulin brings the sugars you're eating and stores them away and and glucagon goes to your liver or um, sources and pulls that back when you need it so that you can deploy it right so I started doing this research and, and thinking well what happens like I was I was really working to get leaner because as a runner you you run faster you feel better as the, the the leaner that you can get and the more weight that you can shed and what I found was that if you can keep some of those stores to a minimum, your body will actually then go and pull um, from more fat store mm-hmm. and other other locations on your body. And if you're doing this over a period of time, so let's say let's say you're you're training for you know months. The, the cumulative effect of that is you continue to get leaner and leaner and leaner. Um, so for me, I, I would always be told, you know, you need to eat this type of meal the night before. You need to eat this in the morning, usually starchy, usually, um, you know, banana or bagel or pasta dinner. Um, and what I found over time was that for me personally, and, and there are others that I, I'm reading more and more about now, it just doesn't. It just isn't necessarily true. Um, right. it, and maybe from a biochemical perspective, you can prove out why it should work better. For me personally, it doesn't. And so what I found is I was progressively getting leaner and faster, 
and feeling better. Um, and, and I mean, for a lot of reasons, muscles, digestion, I mean, you know, try eating a, a big carb based dinner the night before and then running 26.2 yeah. miles. Like it's really not that advisable to be honest. Um, my opinion. Um, so I think for me, like that was, that was a really big, um, aha moment around do what works for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's similar with some of these other things you're reading about today, intermittent fasting or some of these other carb cycling. Yes. Methods, like it, you know, try it. If it works for you, that's great. If, if not, but, but you're right. I think this theory around, um, it must be meat, you know, meat makes muscle, Um, or you must have a a carb based, um, dinner the night before a marathon. A lot of these things, you know, you can build muscles from plant-based proteins. (laughs) Yeah. As you you are uh, evident from. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So because this show is called innovativeness, right? I think at one point we had a, a little exchange about the concept of what thinking you know, centered thinking is versus learning to think off center, right? And you had mentioned that there was a period in your life where you had attended a conference where a lot of things changed for you. Um, And I found that very interesting. So if you could go with that one. Absolutely. Um, It it really was a pivotal point for me. Um, So the actually the Hershey company sponsored a training with a company called What If, and they're a they're an innovation-based learning company. At, they were originally out of London. Now they're I mean I think they're London, New York, very large cities, and they they just came in and taught you very there there was a very kind of I think it was maybe one two, it was five weeks or four weeks of training, but it it literally once you got past a certain point in the training you began to think differently. And, you know, I feel like the word, the word innovative gets overused because everyone, you know, everyone talks about being innovative. And I guess for me, it was, it was sort of about turning something on its head and throwing out all the rules and trying to come up with that reinvention of what it was. So, you know, in, in the CPG world, you know, again, you have, you have chocolate or you have candy and you're trying to come up with the next new thing. It's kind of challenging, right? Because there's all these rules, um, around you like, well, is it a bar? Is, does it have peanuts? Does it have this? Does it have that? To get to true innovation, I felt like I learned in this process that you really have to, you do. You have to throw out all the rules and and sort of go rogue, right? You you have to build it back up from from the base again. And and I think the the hardest part for me personally was I was I was sort of always taught growing up to obey what you've been told, listen to the rules, you know, um, follow the rules, make sure that you're a good citizen. And those are all very good things um, in your life to do. But with innovation, it's completely the opposite. It's actually don't listen to what anyone's told you worked or don't listen to, well, Julie, we tried that. It didn't work. Move on. Because you you have to push back in the face of that and say, no, I believe there is a, a kernel of something here that is the answer 
but it takes so much peeling back the onion layers. And if you don't have the fortitude to do it, it's a real challenge. Um, but this was this was a huge pivotal moment for me because after that I started thinking differently. Huh. And I questioned everything. So, you know, now I, I feel like I'm a little bit of a deliberate rule breaker sometimes because I'm trying to uncover that next greatest thing. Yeah. Well, sometimes right. you got to break the rules to move forward. That's for sure. Yes. Yeah. Well, in the face of science fiction, there's possibility, right? And that, I think, abstract thinking, abstraction is undervalued because we a lot of times like to have anchors mm -hmm. for a process so that we feel like we're within the boundaries of not being unsettling. But in fact, yeah, you, you are the type of person clearly who, if you're going to find you know, something that is a rule, such as carb loading, you will actually go into the science of it to determine as to whether or not it works for you. And that's the kind of thinking that's necessary, especially in such a world that is moving in all these specialized ways. But yeah. I, and I think you make a good point. I also think it, it can be taught. I've, I've heard people say to me, no, I just don't think that way. No, I, you know, I, I like, I like process flow. I like stage gates. I like very much anchored, but you can actually train yourself to become more comfortable with that kind of thinking. It's tough at first because you feel like you're floating. You feel like you're not grounded. You feel like, well, what if I don't have results? And what if I don't have this? And what if I don't have that? And at some point you kind of let all that go and you say, what's the worst thing that's going to happen? I'm going to do this carb loading thing. I'm going to not eat carbs. And tomorrow I'm going to get halfway through my run and I'm going to fall over or I'm going to have to stop. Okay, well, guess what? Then I've proven that theory. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Leaping. That's yes. that's what it is. Inevitably, if you do not leap, there's no way you're going to get to flying. That's for sure. So forget about that. <laughs> you're just going to be walking with all the pedestrians. No, but really in, 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 in this interconnected world, too, I think that there's a new thing that's going on with our relationship with information, but our lack of flexibility within that. Um, you know, I mean, when you get on the, the reading list and it's fed to you, all of these different things that are happening, sure, you cycle through that as a concept, but to get out of that flow, you know, it's it's the, uh, what is the word for the, the mathematics of it? The you algorithm. Know, the algorithm, yes. Yeah. It is challenging the algorithm because the algorithm is still based upon the human interaction with setting up the algorithm. And it's realizing that while that's a great flow, maybe, and it's working a lot of things, it is only, lim it is limited, right? It is mm -hmm. still limited. Mm -hmm. so. it yeah, it reminds me of another, um, we were doing a podcast with somebody else and they said, think of the problem you want to solve and, and then work backwards, right? So you're not, it's just a different road to get there. Absolutely. It's not all roads are the same, that's for sure. Absolutely. And I think also f like filling your world with various types of data. You know, okay, if you always read the same blogs and you always read the same um, news feed and you always read the same books from the same authors mm -hmm. and you always read, oh, I read all the books on this, this list that the CEO recommended. If you do all that, you're training yourself to be a certain kind of person. Right. And you're not actually, it's great what you should be doing. Expose yourself to people you disagree with. 
-hmm. expose yourself to people who think differently than you who maybe write in a way that you you don't gravitate to or pick up a new news feed or pick up a new I sometimes I will be at the airport and I will pick up a magazine that I know nothing about sometimes I've never even heard of it mm-hmm. and I will read through it and I walk away with usually five three to five insights could be totally unrelated to let's say plant-based protein but you can link yes you can link it's it's like um actually in what if training they called it um distant universe i think it was called Hmm. so you you looked for things that could give you insights for the problems you're solving but they might not be in your field right and that's the beauty of it is you may find an innovative solution from someone else or some other place it gives you a different perspective and a whole different like outlook on things for sure that's that's interesting yeah it's encountering poetry I think mm-hmm. I mean, in, in all things, the art form of things is the mechanical nature of being able to to do something beautifully because you get to that point. But then innovating beyond that is there's another marker there where you do need to leap past the genre, so to say. You know, it's it's crazy stuff. The, the brain is very pliable. It's also very habituary. Mm-hmm. And that's, I think, the greater issue is that the habits of our brains are not always the best um, way to improve the brain itself. Right. Absolutely. You know? um, Absolutely. You know, and I mean, this also calls back again to plant-based and the many avenues that you, the challenge of being able to articulate new thought processes in what and how it can relate to our world of food and also in how we communicate that to people. Um, one of the things that ingredients and companies like such as Ingredion or even Hershey's really kind of brings to mind to me is the word processed, right? It's, it's a word that I, I am fearful of in a lot of ways. I think the same way that people are fearful of the word science sometimes, mm-hmm. but really establishing the uh, conditions where something can be done again and again in the same way to yield something that's a product that's a part of habit granted it's necessary to have those steps absolutely and and i mean yeah the the word process i i do feel like sometimes gets a a bad rap and really the word process is is it's a transformation right it's it's um it's really taking a food that maybe wasn't fully edible in its raw form and making it safe, making it palatable, making it nutritionally available. So I think sometimes the word processed, you know, highly processed foods, it gets a very bad name. And, and, you know, I think for, for, in some cases, maybe for good reason, I think uh, for, for teaching though, kind of consumers processing brings, food safety processing brings a lot of benefits but you're right it's it's a repeatable process that can be can can be done over and over again to to yield the same uniform ingredient or but yeah that's it's a it's a valid point yes for sure yeah and there have been a lot of great insights that you've shared with us um but obviously, given that this is an innovativeness podcast, if you have any like words of advice for entrepreneurs or any kind of anybody looking to get into this field, um, just out of curiosity, like what what would that advice be? I mean, I think for me, it, it's 
I've kind of talked about it, but I'll pull it kind of all together. I think one is, is insight is the why of the world. And I've seen a lot of products on the CPG side enter the market and the insight wasn't quite there. They, they never make it. The insight is, is why do people care? Why do people want this product? Why, why would they pay money to buy this product instead of the other millions of products that are on the market today? So I think one is really understanding who is going to buy this and what the insight is. What are you delivering that they need? And, and I know, you know, people will say to me, that's so simple. It's just, it's just market insights. It's consumer insights. It's really not that big of a deal. It's huge. It's mm. everything. And that's what you build. That's the foundation by what you build. So, you know, brushing over that part doesn't work. Um, and I guess the second piece would be around just break the mold. Like, really, I mean, ask questions, talk to people, and, and really try to find ways to break those rules. Stop stop looking at the world in terms of, this is a list of rules, how do I make a product that fits these rules? I say break those rules and then say, now what? Hmm. Now what fits back in this mold from this insight side? So it's, to me, those are the two, I mean, there's lots of other things. I mean, good science, good technology, uh, a good production facility, good labeling and regulatory, um, great flavors, taste is king. I could give you a million things for success, but I think for those two are are really at the crux of of, um, getting into this space. And for plant-based, I mean, it just feels, if you look at the data, if you look at the market, if you look at the way things are going, plant-based doesn't have a ceiling right now. It's mm. it's just continuing to, you know, the data just came out um, from Spins and Nielsen, um, I think last week. It was like April, April of 17 to April of 19, um, 36 or 34 percent increase in sales of all the categories of plant-based. I mean, that's just, Amazing. that's not even just double, you know, we used to say double digit, that was 11. Yeah. No, this is, you know, wow. Very large magnitude. It's amazing. Okay, I have three, three questions for you. They they should be quick. So, okay. first, favorite fiction. Wow. Okay. I don't I don't read that much fiction. Okay. Isn't that? That's okay. I was gonna say terrible. it in a different way. It might be favorite fiction fiction versus nonfiction. I'm a huge Harry Potter fan. Huge Harry Potter nice. fan. Like, okay. I mean, huge Harry Potter fan. I know every movie. I know every book. I've, yeah. So that that's probably, yeah. Okay. So magic is something that interests you. Again, clearly. it's the breaking magical. all the rules. Right. How <laughs> it about, is. How about, do you, do you have a favorite poet? Mm, not really. Not really. No, okay. I don't, I don't do a whole lot with poetry. I'm... I'm very, I guess I'm very one-dimensional in that way. I mean, there, I've enjoyed lots of poetry. I've never followed one, um, one It's hard author. to, yeah, well, that's uh, that's not an easy question either. Yeah. And I don't like being pigeonholed either. Right. Um, there, there's, there's much, there's a po- book called Leaping Poetry, Robert Bly wrote. Okay. It's interesting because it goes into the way in which certain poets leap outside of 
you know, the, the norm of things. So okay. deriving some interesting insights into maybe even language innovation, thought process, all of that. But um, we, you know, I, I also, well, the th <laughs> that was kind of the, th that was the three, I think. Did uh, I, do, gotcha. Maybe I need to learn how to count. Fiction, nonfiction, and poetry, gotcha. <laughs> yeah, there gotcha. you go. But, you know, I mean, Julie, thank you so much for spending time with yes, us. thank you. And, we and really, thank you for the tour. Yeah. You yeah, are welcome. All of it is very excellent. So yes, thank you. very insightful, too. Thank you, you so much. Thank you again, Julie, for inviting us to Ingredion and speaking with us. What an awesome experience. I feel honored that we got the opportunity and an up-close look into the industry. For more info about Ingredion, visit Ingredion.com. And to learn more about Brand First, go to brandfirstnj, as in New Jersey, dot com.